Dotnet Rocks episode 829 with guest Venkat Subramaniam. Recorded live Tuesday, October 16th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey Houston, it's .NET Rocks! A rebel I came, and I'll die the same. <laughs> we love Texas! Woo! Yeah! <laughs> AstroTurf, yeah! I could do without the traffic. When? Oh, my God, it, yeah. It's, you, if you watch the Tracker app, you watch us wander around Houston just trying to get through the traffic. Well, and a lot of that was our GPS. Was, but does GPS, like, not work in Houston? Is this a thing? Works too well. <laughs> works, works too well. It keeps the Yanks out, right? Yeah. <laughs> Must have been using. No, we were not using iPhones. Actually, it's funny. My Windows phone, my Lumia 920, was the only thing that worked out of our Garmin or whatever it was, yeah. and your phone, and and Al's phone, Alan, our driver. So anyway, we got here, and we're very happy because Venkat Subramaniam is here. And before we talk to Venkat, we have a little business to do. Indeed. Yeah. So roll the music for Better Know Framework. All right. What do you got? Well, you know, uh, I, I get tired of just looking through the framework and looking for for things that mm -hmm. we may or may not know about. And so sometimes I go the off, whole framework memorized by now. Yeah. Well, not really. But, you know, I go off to CodePlex and I find projects that are interesting yeah. and well, you know, now we're in the world of modern apps, and so I feel like every once in a while I should, you know, when I find an app that I really like, mm -hmm. that I should talk about it. Sure. So, the the Facebook app for Windows Phone is notoriously bad. Yeah, well, okay. And, you know, you, one would argue that maybe 90% of what you do on Facebook you can do through the People Hub. Yep. But there are things that you can't do through the People Hub, like filter your news feed and all of that stuff. So, sometimes you want to go, if you're a Facebook user to uh, an app. So I found one in the store. Now I have a Lumia 920, so this is a Windows Phone 8 app. I'm not sure if it's out there for Windows Phone 7, but somebody will tell me and tell us and let us know. But it's called Facebook Touch. Hmm. Fast. Stinky fast. That's the way we like it. Very, very fast and fluid, just the way Windows phone app should be mm -hmm. and uh, and it looks like a mini Facebook page on your on your phone and does nice. everything that you want and uh, just love it so I can't just another never, reason you love your phone 8 so yeah the phone 8 is amazing awesome. it is the Star Trek phone okay that's yeah. cool so that's it Facebook touch know it learn about it if you are such a user go get it awesome who's talking to us Richard I grabbed a comment off of the freshly published uh, 819 which is Orin Eni's show on doing no sequel that we did on the road trip, if you recall, back in the rest of yep. Virginia. Just As the giant the hurricane, hurricane was coming our way. That's right. We'd already sent the RV south. And we'd driven a car there. And it was just the two of us. And then mm. you went down to Tallahassee. I was able to get home. And, and then it really got messy in the northwest. And people still cleaning up there. But, you know, it was amazing that people came up to us after that show and said, so, Oren, why are you here? And is he, he's here because we brought him there. Yep. We brought him there for the show. Just, uh, just to do that show. And he did a great job. So this is a comment from Andrew Hansen. Who says, uh, I got up this morning, I checked the my podcast list to see what I'd be listening to on my drive, and I was excited to see this podcast. Just last night, I signed up for a free App Harbor account with a free RavenDB add-on to play around with. I've heard a lot about Orin and RavenDB, and it sounded really great. I think there's a significant problem in understanding document databases for someone who has spent a significant time working with relational databases, which is probably most of us. After listening to Orin talk, it seems to me that we really need to approach our data in a completely different mindset. Just considering building a data store without doing joins starts to make my brain hurt. It would be easy to dismiss NoSQL because it is quite a paradigm shift, but I think that would be foolish. We just have to be careful to let the document database be a document database and not try to fit it into the relational mindset. Well, I got no argument with you there, Andrew. Uh, absolutely true. And I think the problem is we've taken the relational database granted for so long because it's always been there that we just automatically start 
I'm thinking about third normal form and all this decomposition that, uh, as we got into with Orange, just not necessary in a lot of cases, or it can be done later outside of the transactional path. I think that's the big thing that we got with RavenDB is a good transactional document database. So you can just hand it the object and it'll store it safely. Uh, so thanks very much for your comment. I appreciate your thinking. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 350 courses authored by industry experts, such as the people that you hear on this show. And uh, they offer up to about 8 to 12 new courses every month. Coverage of everything from iOS and Android to Java to HTML, CSS, everything on the Microsoft stack you can possibly think of. Process, you name it, it's up there. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. Try it today. And with that, let's give another big round of applause to our guest, Venkat Sabramaniam. So, uh, Venkat, it hasn't been that long since you were on the show. Just in June, we, we caught up with you in, in Norway at NDC. Mm -hmm. And uh, what tell, tell us about yourself, because uh, I didn't get the chance to get your bio up, so... Are, are you still teaching? Are you still teaching at the University of Houston, or was that are those days gone by? Primarily learning as part of that teaching. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I moved away from Houston a few years ago, but uh, found out that uh, I sh they want me to still teach. Mm -hmm. So I've been teaching remotely for the past about five years. Oh, well, that's really cool. Yep. So how do you like the whole online teaching learning thing? Well, I, I had to refactor the way I teach. So in a sense, I don't actually teach. Instead, I do about two hours of code review every day. So students actually get to listen to my tapes, and then they work on refactoring the code uh, every day. So it's a very different learning experience than what we normally expect from a college course. Highly efficient. You know, I was, I've been listening to uh, or following the whole online education thing, and it's happening all the time that professors are recording their lectures so that the students can go back for the lectures and watch them, you know, at their own pace, and they can rewind and everything. It's a wonderful thing. You've ever been a in a college lecture and just wish you had a remote so they could say, wait a minute. What'd you just say there? Say that again because I didn't grok that. Um, but then to, to use the time that they have together, when, you know, when they get together to actually share ideas and, and to, to work things out, you know, ask questions. And that kind of stuff. Well, one of, one of the problems is uh, one of the courses I teach is software design. And over the years, I realized that we cannot create a design in one sitting mm -hmm. and it's got to be evolved. So what's a better way to learn designing than to actually design? So we take problems, and then we go through every day, and we do ev evolutionary design. And so you're iterating the design over and over again. That's right. For the two weeks, they get to tear it apart and put it back together. Mm -hmm. It also means you have to plan all the mistakes in. Um, actually, we are really good at uh, making mistakes as humans, so I didn't have to work too hard for that. <laughs> you don't have to work hard to find the mistakes. They'll right. be there. Yeah. I really enjoyed your presentation uh, in Venkat. For those who weren't here in Houston, did a presentation by himself for about an hour about uh, sort of the rise and fall of empires and how that relates to software. And I always like, you know, the, the, the history of human behavior as, as we know it and relating that to, you know, the, the everyday foibles that we go through. I mean, that's, it's brilliant. And especially when it's, when you can do that with software development, uh, it really strikes a chord. It, it is, uh, you know, software development is one of the human activities. So, uh, you know, we bring our nature in what we do. And, uh, I mean, humans have been around for centuries and centuries and centuries, and we've done all these mistakes. And so I think we can learn quite a bit from that. So the next time you're in a scrum meeting, just, can, you know, think of yourself on that grandiose level of being, you know, planning the march on, uh, on Moscow with Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> not not as glamorous as that. Most of the meetings. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're, if you're, if you're going to do the Napoleon's March, now you're really defining Death March. Right? Death <laughs> March. Is that the deployment of Vista? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> How many came back exactly? So you consider ourselves uh, archaeologists when we're looking at other people's code. Absolutely. You brought up some great comments that you found in code. Yeah, well, uh, I was actually uh, looking at a, a, a code um, for a client recently, and uh, right as we were going through the code, this, this by the way, is a very highly scientific engineering uh, product, uh, very technical. 
And right in the middle of the code, I saw int L1, L2, L3, L4, L5, semicolon, slash, slash. God, I have no clue what this is. <laughs> and, 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 and poor Common guys. prayers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so, so one of the things I, uh, you know, I was talking about software design course and, and working with people. Um, how would we feel if our parents gave us name as P1, P2, and P3? Right. <laughs> so, so why would we name variables as L1, L2, and L3? I, I think they deserve a little bit more respect. And uh, so poor quality code. Uh, we cannot be agile if our code sucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we all talk about agile. We all want to develop products that are easy to modify. But you're sitting there in front of the customers. They're suggesting a particular change. And as you're listening to them, you realize to go touch that piece of code, you won't be able to go home for the weekend. Right. Now you're going to convince them that's not a good change to have. Yes. So, so a lot that of times... Feature definition by fear? Yeah, yeah. And, I'm and, sorry, you can't have that feature. I'm afraid of that. that that's right. And, and to the contrary uh, to that, uh, I, I've given the term, most of us practice what's called agile by convenience. Mm -hmm. And we pick and choose practices that are easy, like stand-up, doesn't really hurt anything. Right. And uh, then when it comes to really sustainable technical practices, we kind of tend to drop them off. And I think that's where the problem really is. So, so a lot of times in, in software, I mean, I used to, I, I, I really like, uh, you know, euphemisms because euphemisms are, you know, nice way to say the bad things. And I worked in companies where the boss would say, we poured concrete over it. And meaning that the guy who wrote the code doesn't live here anymore yeah. and don't touch that code because nobody can change it. Yeah. And, and it really becomes hard to maintain software. And, and we know this. Uh, but but as Einstein said, uh, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. And in no other profession, I think, uh, except politics, that's being repeated <laughs> so many times with the hope of uh, having a different result. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, it, you know, that's a classic one with the Agile thing is we all say we want to add some Agile. We start calling things Agile, but we don't change any of our practices. That's right. This is a theme that has come up on the road trip over and over when we talk to people about, you know, the, the problem with Agile isn't the methodology, it's the implementation or the half implementation. And I hear the, the word, the phrase Agile, but... You know, we're agile, but we're only doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. Agile, but. But I still have a fixed budget and a fixed timeline and a fixed set of features. Yeah. <laughs> but you can be agile inside of that. Right. Yeah, it's all got to go through our, our big process from the boss. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's not really all that agile. And are you actually teaching agile these days or really just programming? Um, both. Mm -hmm. yep. Do the two really go together? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, I, I focus more on agile technical practices. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, test-driven development, uh, ability to mock uh, more effectively, refactoring. Mm -hmm. Evolutionary design is so important. Uh, you know, if you really think about it, you ask most people, you know, is architecture important? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Architecture is extremely important. So when do you create it? Of course, you got to have architectural blueprint before you start anything. Mm -hmm. All right, leave the thought aside for a few minutes. Uh, take a timeline on a project. Uh, how much of the project details do you know in the beginning? How much of it you know, like 50%, 60% of the project? Of course, we don't know a whole lot in the beginning. As we progress, we know better. Now put those two together. Mm -hmm. We are saying architecture is extremely important. 
But we and will we'll, do it at the beginning. And we will do that when we have no clue. Right. So it really makes no sense to commit to things. Uh, and, and so that's one of the things is not to... So, so one of the confusions is we kind of... It's a pendulum. On one hand, we do upfront design and that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But then not doing any design doesn't work either. Right. So, so how do we evolve it? Uh, we have to. So that's one of the things I focus on as well: evolution design and how to really evolve the design, and and uh, you know not not you know end up in a corner. The hard part of this is that fifty percent point where you realize you where I've often found that's the point where we really get a picture of what the app's going to look like, and now we revise the architecture, which is fine. So that's fine going forward. But then you go back and you look at what you've already written fifty percent of the way through and said. All of this needs to be revised to this new architecture. Uh, so that, that's uh, so. There are two points I would I would raise for that. Uh, one is uh, you know somebody that I admire the most is uh, Frederick Brooks, mm-hmm. and the software field, mythical manment, and and the software field has been working really hard for the past thirty years to disprove him. Mm-hmm. And and he said uh, several you know really interesting things. And one of the things he said is, go ahead and build a product, and when you're done with it. Throw it away and start over. Mm-hmm. And now you have a chance of really, you know, figuring out what it is. Yep. Now, try telling that to the boss and that's the easiest way to get fired. Right. And, but does it mean that he is wrong? No, actually, yeah. he's very right. So, so the, the way I look at his words is, you know, throw away small pieces of work every hour, every 30 minutes, every five minutes. <laughs> exactly, right? So, and the second thing is, if we were to take things that are architecturally significant and high value to begin with, then we get to the 50% point, we don't have to fear about a lot of things changing mm-hmm. because we took on the harder problems to begin with. Right. Well, with agile development, we want speed, so we could say maybe we should take easy things first, but that's kind of naive. Yeah. We should really take the hard ones and the valuable the ones. Risks. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that can mitigate that risk to a certain extent. Tell the story about the Battle of Somme, was it? Yeah, Battle of Somme. So, so one of the biggest... Um, Things I notice when I go talk to companies about agile development is at the door they say we're all agile. I'm like so glad we got that got you know got that out of the way. Yeah. And are we doing adaptive planning? And I would say a lot of companies which are doing agile don't actually do adaptive planning. Mm. And adaptive planning is so important, right? To create a plan. But and and one of the th- it's, it's kind of like having a GPS, not the kind that you had today, but yeah. the, the the real GPS to to really guide the project along the way. So we got several opportunities. So so the, the idea is this: there is always a time on a project when the project can be turned around, mm-hmm. and that opportune moment is seldom towards the end. And with an agile development practiced well, we got several points along the way where we can observe what what we are doing how things are progressing, and then turn around. Mm-hmm. But, but a lot of companies create this plan, and then they think that they can just soldier along the way. Right. So this goes back we to a, a plan. Yeah, we We're had a plan. Following the plan. Exactly, right? I mean, the plans are created for a reason. Why, why shouldn't we follow it, mm-hmm. right? And, and this relates to a very difficult story, uh, Battle of Somme uh, in World War I. S-O-M-M-E. S-O-M-M-E. And uh, the British and the French on one side, and, and the Germans on the other. And the plan was to go through trenches. And these trenches were very narrow. Maybe one and a half, two people can walk to, you know, in parallel with each other. And they wanted to send a pipeline of soldiers through these trenches. And the plan was to emerge on the other side, surprise the Germans and attack them. Well, unfortunately, the Germans knew this was happening. They were waiting. So on the very first day of the Battle of Somme, they send the soldiers, pipeline them, and the first set of soldiers to come out on the other side, get attacked, and of course, as they got killed, the people right behind them tried to turn around. The pipeline was full, so they couldn't turn around. So on the very first day, thousands of people actually were killed right in the trenches. So of course, the the rational mind would say, gosh, that didn't work. Yeah. Don't Let, do that again. Yeah, don't do that again, right? Stop, well, stop, stop, stop uh, repeating it. Unfortunately, not only did they try the next day, they went on with this for nine full months. This is considered to be one of the bloodiest battles in human history. Hmm. Millions of people died on both sides. Now, this, this is really grim because when we talk about agile development, for most part, not all of it, we talk about risk, which is financial risk, mm-hmm. not, not human life. Well, here's an example where in history, human life was not considered you know, strong enough. 
and and uh, so what chance do we have when it comes to the financials when human life is not being valued so again uh, uh, an example of where planning is the word plan as a noun versus verb I, I definitely value the word plan as a verb, but the noun, the plan becomes obsolete as soon as we create it and we have to re re revisit it. No plan survives contact with the enemy. There you go. Yep. Helmut uh, Walt, Walt, Maltek said mm -hmm. that. Yep. Absolutely. And I think the same thing with software, right? The moment lines of code get right and you get diverted from the plan. So who's the enemy in this case? Is the boss? Uh, no, I mean, it's the, you get back to no plan survives contact with the enemy. No plan survives contact with reality. Exactly. Right? right. When software comes in contact with reality, bad things happen. Yep. And reality yep. can be the enemy here. Well, the change itself is the enemy, the, the uncertainty, our lack of understanding. Uh, and the environment. This is this is one thing that is unique our field. Uh, a new version of screwdrivers and screws don't come out every two weeks. Yeah. But but we have to deal with that and compatibility issues. Mm -hmm. So so too many uh, variables. Yeah, we'll call it. And we're still sitting in this phase in this engineering practice, and I still consider it engineering practice at least some days, where uh, everything's in flux. We haven't matured hardly anything. In fact, we were talking about this just yesterday. Dear as I can tell, the only standard we can actually count on is ASCII. ASCII. Yep. That's about it. Everything else, you can generally recognize that that particular pattern is a bit, is it A? That's about it. Everything else is up for grabs. Sure. And 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 for most part, at the architecture level, we still are doing von Neumann architecture, mm -hmm. right? I mean, 20, 30 years later. So on one hand, when people say things change very quickly in our field, I'm like, what are they smoking? Because, <laughs> you know, things don't change as frequently in certain regards. Certainly the ideals do, but... Uh but not the practice. Yep. It takes a long time for reality to catch up with the ideas. Absolutely. Hey, Richie, guess what time it is? It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's the middle of the show. Time to announce a winner. Today's winner uh, from the .NET Rocks fan club. And this winner is going to win a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection like we give away in every show. Awesome. Today's winner is Anders Bangston. Congratulations, Anders. Big hand for Anders. <laughs> So that's all the tools that Telerik makes for developers, including the box. Win8 controls. That's right. The thousands Win8 controls. of dollars. Yes. Good stuff. And we have thousands of members of the fan club. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Fill out a form or two, and then you're on your way. You could win. And every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology, hand-picked gadgetry by Richard the Toy Boy and myself. We don't yet know what we're going to give away. Well, and by this show's published, it'll it'll be December, so we'll have to about, just about time to give it away. Probably the next show or two. We'll oh be no, it away. really? Yeah, it's true. Wow, it's close. Well, it's very close. Does that mean we're going to record the show in the, with the giveaway on the road trip? It's entirely possible. I've been doing the math. Oh, jeez. So, even though we're recording this in November. This one will be published in, in mid-December, and we really should do the show that's closest to Christmas to actually give it away, I think. Well, no, maybe we got to have time. Maybe the next show, because we got to have time for shipping and all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But let's ask the question. Should we pick a winner right now? No. No. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Venkat, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, and it had to be like, you know, gadgetry toys, what would you, what would you get? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. Mm -hmm. I I am a huge fan of Macs. Obviously, I keep buying well, one every five year. Right there. Yeah, Just exactly. For a mouse pad. <laughs> 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 this mouse pad with a retina display. There's but, five grand. But but the chances are my kids get a hold of the money before I do, and they get to get all the toys. That's what happens mostly. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I think our current favorite kit is, of course, the Surface Pro, mm -hmm. the coolest newest machine that's coming out, mm -hmm. and uh, and a 3D printer. Oh. One of the new Ultrabots, the MakerBot series. They're down the right price range. We can put all that together. So I'm, I'm hooked on that. We're yeah. getting close to having to actually decide now. Yeah, we are. So I think uh, dangerously I like. close. Dangerously close. Wow. I think it might be the next show. Might be. All right. Well, stick around to see what happens there. Um, we had a comment in a little interlude during the recording about the idea of how much software development has been shaped by the hardware. Mm. That constraints in CPU, constraints in memory, size and speed, constraints in storage, size and speed, has really dictated the way we wrote code. You know, the whole Y2K nightmare was us trying to save bytes on years, right? Because two bytes is better than four bytes. And yeah. how many billions we spent cleaning up that little 
nightmare. And I'm, I, I just, you know, you're talking about this, the dogma that still sticks around, the, the Von Neumann designs and so forth. All of that seems so dependent on old infrastructure that they're dogmatic practices. We don't need to do those things anymore. Um, yeah, yes and no. So uh, there, are, there are times when things change and we have to be cognizant of that. And uh, there are times when those come back to haunt us. For example, um, you could be developing in an office with a high uh, bandwidth, huge amount of memory yep. and hard drive. And suddenly you realize you have to deploy this on a mobile device. So you're right. talking about the office team? <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with almost no connectivity or Sorry. low connectivity. Well, just this whole thing that you expect your environment to be the environment that everyone has. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. And, and that's not the case all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and also there's, there's something uh, called uh, Thomas Law, which uh, a pragmatic programmer Dave Thomas uh, mentioned, is uh, as machines get faster and uh, CPUs and, and memory... Uh, we, ha we have, you know, a higher power available to us. And then the operating system and applications take that away. Yep. And if you ask me if I'm waiting for my computer to spin up and do stuff, uh, I think I'm waiting about the same amount of time now as I did in the 80s, even though we have bigger hardware and, and bigger, uh, you know, of everything. Although that seems to have stopped. I mean, one thing is, CPUs aren't getting faster. They actually got slower for a little while there, but you know, sure. run up till the P5, right? Really, the Pentium was sort of the end of the path of that. And, and also Microsoft, especially, is behavior of they built for the next generation hardware. So the Always. stuff you had that day barely ran it, but the stuff you would buy that next year would run it just great. Mm -hmm. But then Minwin took a hold. You know, that, that initiative that even starts back in Vista. And we, I mean, I mock Vista relentlessly. But Minwin started there, this idea that the footprint had to go down. And it was really a reflection on the fact that CPUs weren't going to go any faster. They were going to spread out. They were going to get wider. There was going to be more of them. And so they had to architect differently. I, I, I guarantee you I have no XP box that boots as fast as that Ultrabook I have today. That thing boots. It's, you can't even finish the Windows animation before the thing is booted. Sure, but but when it comes to applications, right? The booting time is one, mm -hmm. and and for example, on the Mac, uh, I, I rarely boot my machine, but but it's frustrating when you are using applications with multiple cores. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got uh, eight cores on my box. Yes, uh, one of them is busy. Well, 100%. all of them are busy sometimes, or <laughs> yeah. or the applications don't take advantage of multiple cores mm -hmm. or not to the right level. What's and, the law that says all software will expand to fill all memory and use all CPU? Right. That's like uh, people's time fills up to occupy all available time, right, Parkinson's yeah. law. So so the idea really is, um, as we have better hardware, as we have better capability, uh, our programming abilities have not really expanded. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because the libraries that we use uh, really are very old in, mm -hmm. in terms of how they uh, you know, let us attack the problem. And uh, making use of, uh, well, programming is hard. Concurrent programming is even more difficult. Yes. Mm -hmm. And most average programmers have not been you know, exposed to concurrency to the degree. I'm still wrestling with the set of work problems that concurrency solves well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we, we always have, you know, ray tracing and, you know, certain computational things that are naturally multi-core. But your typical line of business apps, once you get past two threads, sure. right, the one that's doing the work and the one that's keeping the user entertained with spinning balls and things, like, <laughs> you're done. That's it. Dude, thanks for playing. So, so there, are, there are two things. One is performance. But sure. but oftentimes the other is responsiveness. Yeah, I think responsiveness is actually more important. Uh, well, in 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 some cases, uh, responsiveness is more important, uh, and a, and a lot of times um, in a in a single thread. So so one of the questions that I was asked is, how do you know how many threads we need for an application? Yeah, the correct answer is more. Uh, not necessarily though, <laughs> right? And 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 that's where lots at Outlook, and it still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so so if the if the problem is very computation intensive, yeah. Uh, creating more threads actually will result in poorer performance mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. because you're going to be trashing the CPU switching between tasks. Yeah, constant switching becomes so. Problem. So we need to get an understanding of the blocking factor: how much time your thread is going to be, our application is going to be waiting for either an I/O or a network access compared to the actual work it, it has to do. And you can eventually get into threading deadlocking. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've, I've run into it in performance websites where you're literally switching so often, there's a, you cannot solve those things, and they, so, they spin out of control. I'm very curious to get your thoughts about the Task Parallel Library and the new features of C Sharp in .NET 4.5 in that way. 
Sure, I, th- I think that's a definitely a, a, a step forward in the right direction. That is the right direction, though. Well, kind of. But I think the problem is much bigger than being able to solve with those solutions. The, the reason why, so, so my conclusion is this. How many times have we written code and then we go back that evening and say, did I do that right? Mm-hmm. And then you discover there's another hidden problem in there. Mm-hmm. So I've realized over time that programming concurrency is like working with a mother-in-law. She's just waiting for you to fail. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so we, we can't have that kind of friendliness when it comes to developing applications. Mm-hmm. So while those APIs are clearly better move in the right direction. For but that, that language. For that know. language yeah. and for, for an evolutionary step. Yeah. But I still believe we fundamentally have to attack the problem at the core, which is really shared mutability. Right. And on one hand, Sharing is a good thing. I mean, remember what mom told us, right? Sharing is good. Mm-hmm. Mutability is kind of odd, but we are used to it. That's the way we programmed in Java it and C Sharp. Doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. And you and know, your sha- mom might have said sharing is good. My mom said, "Give that to your brother." <laughs> <laughs> um, so, shared mutability is purely devil's work. And the minute we bring in shared mutability, we have to take care of synchronization and, and related issues. But, you know, getting back to our the earlier statement we got in this whole conversation about that shared mutability practice, that really, when we talk about object practice, this sharing memory and having multiple things act upon it came because of the resource constraints. Yep. Memory was precious once upon a time. Well, yes and no. There are the, that, that's true to a certain degree. But the way we design applications makes a huge impact as well. Mm-hmm. The way we architect and design applications, we say, here is an information, and multiple tasks have to work off of that particular piece of information. Mm-hmm. And, and on the other hand, uh, you know, with asynchrony, I think we mm-hmm. got a little bit of better handle. But it's an API on one hand, but people still have to get better at designing with those right. to reap the re- real benefit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm, I'm looking at things like uh, you know, software transactional memory, for right. example, and actor-based concurrency. Those things uh, on what was that uh, second one uh, actor ba- actor based actor yes based. Uh, and and Erlang for example has right. had actor based concurrency for quite a long time mm-hmm. right. so so the dis- distinction between on one hand what I would like to call as an isolated mutability where it's mutable but only one thread can ever get to it right I know this is a scary thought to talk about but look way back at STMs mm-hmm. uh, single uh, threaded apartments there you go yeah yeah uh, single threaded apartments were essentially the same except only one thread could run within the apartment. Right. But but imagine you could have multiple objects now, but each object can have only one thread running at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's like an extension of SDA, which is kind of what actors do. So the, the way I think about it now, and tell me if I'm flawed in this thinking, but I'm, you know, C Sharp is uh, sort of our all one size fits all line of business. Great for business apps, uh, language, and with the the with the. TPL, you know, with async and await and everything, it sort of allows us to make more responsive UI. And uh, certainly for, for uh, you know, for the kind of service-based line of business apps that we do now. Your, uh, when I hear people talk about F-sharp and about Erlang and about functional languages in general where, you know, everything is immutable, and uh, this sort of leads me down the road of what types of applications do, or what types of data crunching or number crunching does this language really shine at? Because obviously, and we say this over and over again, obviously you're not going to build line of business apps with F-sharp that do everything that C-sharp apps do because C-sharp is better for at that. I, th- I think fundamentally it goes back to how we design applications. And so you don't think there's a certain type of Pro- problem that uh, functional language will solve. Well, so yes. all, all of all of these languages are Turing complete. Mm-hmm. So yeah. pretty much you can write right. code in any of these languages. Then it comes to efficiency and, and right. how we are able to design right. with how it. How badly we have to twist ourselves up to get the outcome. A- we want. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and it's uh, it's really going back to our. Uh, it's a cultural shift. It's a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And learning a library is easy. Learning a language is easy. But changing the paradigm is very difficult mm-hmm. because it requires an active unlearning and then relearning. And, and so, I mean, here's the way to think about it, right? Uh, when I used to program in Java and C Sharp alone, the way I wrote code was in one way. But the minute I started programming in these other languages, 
I don't use objects as much anymore as I used to. Hmm. I sit there and say, should I really be using maps of data more mm -hmm. than objects of data? Mm -hmm. So so it really influences the way we design software. And so I would argue I don't write code in Java and C Sharp anymore the same way as I used to in the past. So, and the minute we start programming in these other languages, we can still solve the same problems, but I think we'd be solving them very differently. Um, the, one of the things I try to think about is, rather than focusing on mutation of data, what if we focus more on transformation of data? Then it becomes a lot more easier to work with. And, and the other thing is... Transformation of, of data meaning when I... When I changed what I think is this object, it made a copy of that, and now I can see the progression, progression of, of these that. copies exactly. Yeah. And and of and course, I have a history to go back on too. So it's do sort of the universally applicable. A absolutely, and and also uh, we would a lot of times when we think about these things, which is natural, we think about hey, here are the tools and the data structures I have. And I, I can't see how I would be able to do this with these data structures. Right. When we program in these languages, we don't use the same data structures. Right. We tend to use different data structures. So, so it's a different tools, it's a different set of uh, you know capabilities on our hand. So you can really only get that perspective once you go into a functional language and see what you are constrained to do. Right. And then you see how much more efficient that is, even maybe in, even in a line of business app. Absolutely. And, and that, uh, unfortunately, that takes a bit more effort because we can quickly learn the syntax of these languages. Mm. But to learn the idiomatic way to do that takes yeah. a lot more effort. And, and uh, how would people programming predominantly in those languages end up writing code mm -hmm. is something we have to take the time to learn. Well, and you've seen this with people who are new to a language you're familiar with, still writing in their old language and your old and language idioms, right. but just using the new syntax. Exactly. And it's just, it really twisted up code. Yeah. What are you doing here? You haven't grokked the natural way this language works. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Component 1. Smarter Components for Smarter Developers. So what's your advice, you know, for people who want to get outside their comfort zone? And uh, is it as simple as just, you know, go, go read a good book on F-sharp and start it to be... Uh... Well, as much as I write books, unfortunately, I would say a reading book is not a very effective way to do it. <laughs> um, uh, sure, I think it's important to read books. And, and uh, in fact, I would recommend reading a lot of books. But I'm a person who spends more time l learning by coding yeah. than by reading. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, different people's mileage varies, but my my uh, reference point usually is an hour of reading and 10 hours of coding. Mm -hmm. uh, and I learn a great deal by making things work and breaking it and then putting it back together. Um, but there are a couple of interesting avenues, I think. One, one, one way to really get better at it is to really have people critique what we do. And, and a lot of times, we kind of become very defensive. We say, here's my code, and I've written a really good code, and, and my code is good as long as nobody looks at it. Right. And, and instead... I find the opposite is true. Most people say, this is as best I could do. Please don't flame me. Uh, you know? Yeah, but, but I would say, go ahead and flame me. You yeah, know, that's a way to learn, right? But and, you get into the harder thing. Like, you're talking about reading and coding. How do you pick up idioms in either of those? Exactly. And so, I'm almost so, afraid to code too long without having a sense of the idioms. I'm going to pick up bad habits. Absolutely. So that's why I think it's important for us to be reviewed and critiqued quite mm -hmm. often. So there are a couple of things I would I would highly recommend. And and you know, again, I was talking about how history has changed and how our field has changed. Sure. Um, you know, when I was a, a kid growing up, there was no laptops. There mm -hmm. was you know, you, there was there was no computers that you could have at home that would run the stuff you want to run. You had to go to the office. You had to go to the library to get stuff, right? Today, you are, you are, the, the smartphone on your pocket is more powerful than the computers we had mm -hmm. on our desks. Um, there are several things I, I highly recommend and I enjoy doing. One is 
you know, Corey Haynes runs uh, code retreats, mm-hmm. uh, organize code retreats, you know, uh, bring people together. And, and in code retreat, we, uh, we go through uh, eight hours or nine hours and we rotate pairs. Incredibly wow. great learning experience. Uh, you pair up with somebody who you don't know and you are sitting there, pick a language and you learn something from them. They learn something from you. That, that's a great way to learn. Uh, I also highly recommend finding somebody who has an interest to learn something. Get together at uh, my favorite place is, uh, you know, a coffee shop. Yeah. And, and get in there on a, on a Saturday afternoon and spend three, four hours just coding something. And, and I think that is a much better way to learn, uh, you know, user groups rather than having somebody come and speak. One user group, you say, we're going to just pair up and start coding on certain, certain problems. Now that everybody uh, has a machine with them, they can do that. And they can pair up and, yeah, now that everybody has a machine, they Video can do training that. training is mm-hmm. also a great way. Yeah. You know, I'm still wrestling with it. Am I learning from writing the code or am I learning from reading the code? I think uh, you're, you're learning from writing it and having somebody read it and critique it mm-hmm. and then going back and so, so, so here's something that I learned, uh, which, which I didn't know before. When I wrote my first book, they, the, the, the reviewers pretty much tore it apart. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a very unnerving experience to look at it because none of what you have done before has been torn apart like that. Mm-hmm. But with the book, it happens. And when I finished it, I realized, wow, if only people read my code like they read the book and tore it apart how good my code really would be. Really dug into it. Right, really, really critique it and say, this is not really conveying the stuff. Go read it and change it. Well, right. now you get into not just the functional aspects, but the intent. Absolutely, the intent. And also whether it is meaningful, is mm-hmm. it understandable? Uh, one of the things we do is we not only review code, we also review the unit tests. And a lot of times somebody has written code fairly well, but have missed out on unit tests. Right. And, and so to me, the best way to write readable code is to read it. And, and when somebody reads it, the only thing that can happen to our code is get better. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh. But it, I mean, it's very different to read for understanding and, or read to, to critique. Uh, but, but, but I, I don't think you can. So, so here's one thing I've realized for myself. And, and I, I suck at writing code. Hmm. I cannot write good quality code. But I'm extremely good in finding fault with other people's code. <laughs> so, so I realized. I'm magic. Why, why should I waste my time trying to pretend that I can write great code? I'll write crappy code, quickly give it to you, and while you critique it, I can go critique your code. Mm-hmm. And in the end of the day, we both have better quality code. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's important to really you know, quickly get to writing better code in that regard. And, and I don't think you can read code without critiquing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really looking for you know, the curly bracket should go here or there. We all know where it should go. Right. But, but it's more about you know, idiomatic representation. Hey, is there a better data structure to use here? Is right. there a better way to express this particular concept? And sometimes it's like, why are you using a for loop when you could use your internal iterator? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, things like yeah. that. And, and, and that's, that's the learning experience I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, it's, it's sort of tapping, tapping into our human uh, desire to sort of, well, not desire, but it, it's easier to criticize somebody than to look at your own problems, right? Yep. Absolutely. It's sort of... Uh, so who are we talking to who was giving us some statistics about um, software quality and that turns out code reviews were more effective for finding bugs than unit testing? Yep. Who was that? I've said that before, actually. Uh, that was one of the better software guys, wasn't it? It was one of the better software guys. Was it Dan North? Guys. Maybe or it was Ken Dan Pugh. North. It was Ken Pugh. Yeah, it was Ken Pugh. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, these, we got an opportunity to go to a conference just for testers. To sitting down with these guys who've collected this huge raft of data on all these different projects and how they're testing them. He's like, hey, you know what? You can write unit tests so you're blue in the face. Nothing, there is no substitute for showing someone else your code. Yeah, And I think it works on a lot of different levels, too. There's the level of once you know someone else is going to look at your code, I think you write your code differently. Absolutely. The same way that knowing you're going to teach a subject makes you learn it differently. Sure. You know, that, that basic, I've, I've always enjoyed working in organizations, typically Friday afternoons. We stop, we, you get your last scramble to get your code ready in the morning on Friday, because at lunchtime, everybody stops, we go into a room, there's always pizza, and no managers. And we sit down and go through everyone's code. And you can tell who had a great week because they want to go first. You've got to see the stuff I wrote, right? And, and really get animated about it. And you got the guys right at the back of the room. 
who's been thrashing all week. Yeah. And, you know, not got a lot done. So, unit test gives us the regression benefit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think we can achieve that with, uh, with other means so easily. Yeah. Well, and the big thing is automation. That, that right, right. It's going to catch it quickly. Exactly. Catch the simple things quickly. But, but uh, you know, as much as I believe that unit testing can give us better quality of design, I don't think that happens autom- automatically. Mm-hmm. It requires a very conscious effort, and, and I don't think we can achieve good quality of design just by unit testing alone. Well, I mean, it, you can write a test to test and pass. Write code that passed the test, but if the code does the wrong thing, then what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think right. code, code, code review. I mean, oh, over the over the years, uh, the number of bugs in the systems have been much low in my own experience mm-hmm. when we did code reviews. Right. Quality of code is better, and yeah. and and you don't get into this you know situation where you create code and and nobody can understand right. it. I, right. I also think that it helps bring the team together. Yep. You know, the, you, you're educating less experienced folks or folks who are unaware of certain areas. Uh, you, you really sort of shake the, uh, the leadership aspects, the emotional aspects, the personality aspects of a team. Sure. Because everybody's vulnerable. You know, is there anything better than the strongest developer you know showing a piece of code and saying, I just couldn't get this right mm. and working with the rest of his team to get it right? Right. You know, it's just the, 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 a little bit of humility and a lot of experience and a willingness that we're all vulnerable there. So a couple of things I would, I would recommend is uh, when it comes to code review, the first thing I, I, I don't want to do is, is have people review the code where these people are not actively writing code yeah. on the project. No managers. You've got to be in the project. Well, well, not only managers, but even technical people mm-hmm. who are not writing code on the project. Right. Yeah. I, I call these the priesthood-based code review. Yes. They have and, no, and nothing invested in it. They, they don't have anything invested. And if, they you're are, not, if you're not also on list to be reviewed, right. you're not in the room. Uh, and and these people are not writing active code, mm-hmm. and they often end up really saying, "Here's the coding standard we want you to follow," right? Rather than being actively involved in you know shaping the code and looking through the details of it. So so that's one thing I would say is is the people involved in reviewing code. The other thing is there's nobody on the team who is so senior enough that their code doesn't have to be reviewed. No. Everybody's code gets reviewed. Now, I would argue the more senior you are, the quicker you are to get reviewed. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's sort of a measure. Yeah. Right? Is it a guy who, you know, it's the emotional fortitude to say, I, you know, I know I need to be reviewed and I'm willing to go first. Absolutely. And also, I don't think the senior people are the ones who review the code all the time. No. Because sometimes the person who is junior or not too familiar looks at the code and says, I don't get it. Mm-hmm, well, right. those are the people who are going to maintain the code yeah. eventually. So if they can get it, you might as well know it today than know it later. They can also see things that uh, come out of left field, you know, that uh, that nobody else is looking for. Absolutely. Because they've assumed them for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And different patterns, different techniques. Hey, I read this, you know, that. I'm, I'm really getting excited when you get a group of folks where they're bringing new ideas in. Yep. at the review and saying, you know, I saw some other ways to go about this. And, you know, trying to get away from a, a sort of paternalistic attitude towards your code. It's my code. Yeah. I like it the way it is. Get off my lawn. Where's my start menu? <laughs> you can go now. We have a question from the audience. You've been talking about the peer review, but one of the things you get out of peer review is the knowledge of libraries. The knowledge of the objects that you may not know one, but other people in reviews do, and that can simplify the code and reduce code bloat. Oh, a- absolutely! Uh, that that's a definitely a, a a great benefit. Uh, one of the things I also have enjoyed quite a bit is uh, when when you work with uh, people, rather than telling them exactly how to do stuff, you kind of give them an idea what need to be done, mm-hmm. and then say, "Come back and ask for a review." And I can't tell you, there are times when I think I know how to do this, but they come back and like, I did not think of that solution. Right. And, and that's when Don't you end up... dictate method. Identify the goal. Exactly. And let them find their way there. Absolutely. And, not, and it's fair to point at the gotchas. You don't want to go down. Don't go over here or there. There's dragons there. Right. And but pros and cons of this. Yeah, absolutely. Find your own way. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the benefit is uh, certain times, there's another benefit as well is you could say, well, here's a simpler way to do it. And then they come back and say, yeah, but here's the reasons why we had to go this route and do it this way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is one of the biggest challenges is we may go and refactor a piece of code, but there is probably a reason why somebody did it that way. 
And and again, that's where I think uh, if if we have investments into a code doing things in a certain way, I would at least like to see some kind of a test that tells me here is the reason why this code is this way. Mm-hmm. That way, we don't foolishly end up refactoring code and missing that particular you know aspect. Isn't there some Zen Cohen or something that deals with the difference between wanting to be right? And wanting to do the right thing. Yep. And the yep. difference is very subtle, but mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the one that it is. But, uh, I mean, it's really good advice. We, as humans, want to be right. We want to be the one that comes up with the right thing instead of, instead of you know, exploring how we can all do the right thing. That's a maturity issue as well, I would think. Uh, as a as young programmer, I probably had a desire to prove that I'm right. Right. But, but as I get more gray hair... I, I think uh, my desire to say I'm right is much less than saying I'm going to give opportunity for others to, you know, kind of, you know, excel and, and be a more of a mentor and, and groom them, if you will. Uh, I think that's more of a maturity, at least yeah. the way I look at it. I might not be the one to come up with the final answer, but together we will be right. Yeah. We will do the right thing. And that's the goal. Yeah. Well, Venkat, it's been a charming hour and I uh, really appreciate your talk. It was Thank you. Fantastic. One more time for Venkat Subramanian. Hey, we'll see you next time on .NET Rock! Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got